The following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. I hope that as you are listening and that you're reading Romans and that you're studying, you are always doing it with an eye to what Paul was writing in Titus that we read a few minutes ago. He said, folks, always engage those other people with politeness and with generosity and with graciousness, because so were you once before. You were lost. You were wayward. You were just like them. You were hell-bound on being hell-bound. And God came in His divine mercy and changed your life like that. And you weren't even looking for Him. And He blessed you so in that way. Or for others of you whose story is so different from that, you grew up in the church and you would say, I've never known a day that I didn't know Christ. What a blessing that testimony is. Never be embarrassed by it. But always give thanks to God for saying, Lord, thank you for having me born into this family with godly parents who led me uh, in my home and led me to Christ. And I grew up never knowing a day that I didn't know the Savior. And always be thankful and generous to those around you to share your story with them. And so my encouragement this morning to you is this. Know these truths so well that you can give them away to somebody else. If you can't explain these things to a child, if you can't explain these things to somebody else, you probably don't own them. You you probably don't have them in your heart in a way uh, that they become part of your very fabric in your DNA, part part of your, your soul itself. And so I want to keep pressing these things down. And what you're going to hear today is probably in some level redundant from what you heard last week with Andrew. But I want you to hear it again, that we are dead to sin, that we are alive to Christ, that the free gift of the gospel is eternal life in Jesus Christ. And that changes us profoundly. Because all of us would want to ask the question, okay, got chapters 1 through 5, Bill. Deep, profound truths, justification by faith alone in Christ alone, uh, that it is His work once and for all that I'm declared righteous by His work. Nothing based on me. It's all on Him. I get that. I believe that. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for I believe it is the power of God for the salvation of the Jew first and then to the Gentile. I got it. But I'm not seeing change in my life. How do I take this truth, which seems ethereal, it seems out here in theory, how do I bring that into my heart and have it affect my day-to-day interactions? How does it change me? All of us should be wanting to be more and more like Christ, changed in those ways. And so this morning, that's what we're going to be looking at. How do we see change? How do we see this affect our lives? So if you have your Bibles, if you would turn with me uh, to Romans chapter 6. I'm going to back up and read the entire chapter because it is one argument that Paul begins here. This is a new section. Uh, 1, 2, and 3 would be one section. Chapters 4 and 5, another section. Chapter 6, 7, and 8, another section. And so this argument, let us pick up now in chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. This is the very word of the Lord. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? 
We were buried, therefore, with him in baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in the order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin for one who has, been, has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So, that also, uh, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to Christ, alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies. To make you obey their passion. Do not present your members as sin uh, instruments for unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you. Since you are not under law but under grace. What then shall we say? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and have been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because your natural limitations... For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. When you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? The end of those things is death. But now you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. May he add his blessing to his reading and hearing of it. Amen. Paul asks the same question twice in verse 1 and in verse 15. And the reason he's asking it is obviously because it's being asked of him. And the question goes something like this. So, if what you've been saying, that this whole justification by faith alone and Christ alone is not based in any way, shape, or form on my merit, that it's not based on who I am and my good works or anything about me, if it's based solely uh, on God and upon his sovereign choice and his sovereign love and his sovereign work within my life, based nothing on myself, and it's an eternal gift that he gives to me, life eternal, no beginning, no end, and it's a gift there, not based on me, right, Uh, that it's God's gift, and I can't lose it because of my behavior, therefore, I get to go on sinning so that grace gets up to abound? Is that what you're saying, Paul? You mean this gift is so good that there's nothing I can do to lose it? So that's what you're saying, Paul. Paul would say, yes, that's what I'm saying, that you can't lose it. So I can just keep on going and sinning so that I can experience more grace in my life? You see, for a new believer or an immature believer, someone who's just starting out, or someone who may be hearing this for the first time, that's a reasonable response. 
That when you hear of the grace of Jesus Christ and his sovereign mercy in your life poured out upon you, the natural instinct of the natural heart and the uneducated and uninformed mind would be to go, this is awesome. I get out of hell, I get into heaven, and I get to do whatever I want to do in between. This is a pretty good deal. And you know what the preacher Paul says? God forbid it. It doesn't come across quite that well uh, in, the, in the English. But he's saying, may it never be. He said, how foolish is that? If you know what's happened to you, you wouldn't go on sinning in that way. It would radically transform and change your life. And so if your life is not being radically transformed and changed, if you're still walking along in this immaturity, it means one of two things. Your, your growth is studded, stumped. It, it, it's, it's not moving forward. That you're remaining in your infancy, and that's not a good place to remain. Or there's no life in you at all. Because if you keep after being under the teaching of God's word for many years and in his church and knowing and studying his word, if you keep and remain in that and you think that that's the way that we can live our lives, it may mean that you've never encountered the Savior at all in the first place. So both of those should make us pause. It's like that old country preacher who looked at the boys on Sunday morning after knowing that they'd been out on Saturday night doing all their craziness and their wild living and saying, boys, you don't get to go sow your wild oats on Saturday night and come to church on Sunday and pray for crop forgiveness or crop failure. Terrible joke teller. <laughs> but that's the way that we live so often. My friend who knew me in college, if he'd known as I've shared with you my prayers on Thursdays, Lord, forgive me for what I'm going to do this weekend. Oh, Paul would look at me and go, McCutcheon, you don't get it. That's not how this works. So we have to ask the question, how then does it work? How, how are we changed? How do we take this grand theology, this beauty of what is being taught to us, and how do we begin to apply it into our lives in such a way that we see radical and new change happen in us? Any of you want to see change happen in your life? couple of you. I do. And Paul does because it's so great. In just a little while, there's this wonderful passage in Romans 7 when Paul goes something like this. Ah, it's a great theological word. He goes, oh my goodness, the sin that I don't want to do, I keep on doing. The things that I want to do, I end up not doing. Oh my goodness, what am I going to do? I'm wrestling with this. I want to change. I'm either believing something about God that I shouldn't or not believing something about God that I should. So we're wrestling this morning. And when we come together and we want to see true change happen in our lives, we're going to look at three things. We're going to look first that you need to understand the problem. You need to understand the problem in your life, that there is a problem in your life. You need to then look at the remedy that's presented to us in the Scriptures and then move from the remedy to the application of the remedy. Think of it this way. If you go to the doctor and he finds that you have cancer and he prescribes for you a treatment plan and he says if you take this, uh, this oral uh, medicine, then it can cure you of cancer. Well, you know what the problem is and you know what the remedy is. But if you don't take the pills, then you won't see healing come. And so for too many Christians, we recognize the problem 
We'll acknowledge the remedy, and then we do nothing. We let go and let God. We sit back and just try to get to heaven as best we can. And Paul would say, I don't know where that theology came from. For we have to acknowledge and recognize the problem. We have to see and believe the remedy. And then we have to apply it regularly to our lives. So what's the problem? What's the problem? The problem is this, Paul says. You're in bondage. You're in slavery to sinfulness. What then are you, are we beginning in verse 15, are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? Interesting, he describes slavery in this sense as voluntary. If you present yourself to be an obedient slave, and for many of you, you're going, that doesn't make sense to me because you're viewing slavery from a Western and especially an American viewpoint of slavery, which was the brutalization based on race and class. That's not a biblical understanding of what slavery was. Biblical slavery in this context was the slavery that came about by an individual who had a massive debt and they couldn't pay the debt. And they realized that they couldn't pay the debt back to the one who had lent them the money or who they owed the money to. So they would voluntarily go to that individual and say, I'm going to enter into servitude to you. I will be a bond slave to you. And over the course of the next 3, 5, 10, 20 years, whatever it is, I'm going to work for you to pay off the debt. My family will come with me. We will live with you. We will work for you so that the wages that I earn are paying off all of the debt Uh, to you. You see, it was a voluntary obedience that went there. And there was something, interestingly, that was gained by the individual, wasn't there? Because if I came to you and I owed you a lot of money and I went to you and said, I will come and come underneath your mastering, underneath your ownership in that way, I gain the forgiveness of my debt. There is a benefit to me from entering into that relationship. But it also cost me something. What did it cost me? It cost me my very freedom. I'm now not my own. I can't go and do whatever I want to do whenever I want to do it, however I want to do it. Uh, There is something that is gained, of course, but there is also something that is lost. Paul uses this imagery to talk about our relationship with sin. He says that we are in a relationship with sin where there is benefit to us, that we come and we say, hey, I'm going to serve this or I'm going to do that. Uh, I'm going to give myself fully over to this and there will be some satisfaction and benefit. You may look better if you give yourself fully to uh, aesthetic. You may live in that nice house. You may gain the money. You may gain the reputation. You may feel good for a moment. There are benefits to us. But Paul is saying just as there was a cost to the one who entered into indentured servanthood, there is a cost for us as we enter into relationship with sin and the cost is we lose our freedom. You see, biblically speaking, there are only two types of people in the world. Those who are enslaved to God and those who are enslaved to something else. Those who serve God or those who serve something else. There is no third place. And so if you're here this morning and you say, well, I'm not a follower of Jesus Christ. I'm not a religious person. I am not one who would say that I serve anything. I would challenge you and say you do serve something. You just don't serve the biblical God. And the question then becomes, what are you serving? What is mastering you? What is enslaving you at that point? The Bible calls this, uh, in many places, idolatry. Sorry, this thing is driving me nuts. Um, 
It's idolatry. And it's this description of biblical idolatry comes in this way. Martin Luther, in his great catechism, has said that in breaking the first commandment, it is the basis of breaking every other commandment. That when we don't have God as our only God, then we break every other commandment. The reason that I break the commandment that says thou shalt not lie is that I'm willing to lie because I am serving you and my reputation in front of you and I want you to like me so desperately that I'm willing to lie. Now, if I was serving God and God only and at his thought of me and his reputation was the most important to me, then I'd tell you the truth at whatever cost it was to me. But I'm serving something else other than God. If I need something and I don't trust God and I'm serving whatever it is that I need, I'm going to be willing to steal it from you and do whatever it takes for me to get it because I'm serving something else. Something else has mastered me other than God. And so Luther would say, and we would say biblically speaking, that in breaking the first commandment, we break all the rest of them. So the question then becomes, what's mastering you? What's mastering you? Well, interestingly, Paul mentions it right here. He mentions it in verse 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. In the old King James, it would have said the lust of the flesh. And we look at lust and we go, oh, it's sexual. But that's wrong and that's why it's been changed. It's actually a word that we've spoken about on many occasions here. You've heard me go back to it over and over again because it is Paul's strongest way of describing enslavement. And the word that he uses there is passions. Thumia. That you're serving passions. And you go, but passions are good. Well, it's good to want a good family, isn't it? Would you all agree that it's a good passion, it's a good desire to want a healthy and good family? Yes? It'd be a good thing for you to want to earn money and provide for your family, correct? To be a healthy person? Correct. To have enough, uh, to have a good reputation in the community. Is that a good thing? Of course it is. All of those things are good things. They're thumias. They're passions. Paul says the problem becomes when you add three little letters to the beginning of it. E-P-I. Epi. When these become epithumia. When they become over-desires. When all of a sudden the good desires of this world, the good desires of life, the passions of this life become ultimate passions. That you have to have them, that they define who you are, that you do everything possible to gain them, and you have to have them, and if you don't have them, you have no value, you have no worth, you have no reputation. That's what's controlling you, he says, is the epithumia of your life. And so it would then behoove us as individuals to ask the question, what's controlling me? Well, Bill, I don't have any of those things. Okay, maybe you don't. But in the reading, and by the way, I love my job in this month, especially in this area. I got to read sermon after sermon after sermon this week and listen to sermon, I mean, dozens of them by Dr. Morton Lloyd-Jones and by John Piper and by Tim Keller and by D.A. Carson and by George Whitfield and by just the greats. And I'm so blessed in the middle of it, to see these things and to be challenged in them. Preaching, I was told one time, is nothing more than creative plagiarism. And so I don't know if any of what I've said to you or I'm about to say to you is of original thought at all. But I know this, it really pierced me in this way. It challenged me to ask this question, what are the over-desires of my heart that are enslaving me? 
Tim Keller gives a test, three things. He says, here are three places that you can test to see what may be an over-desire in your life. Anger. If something blocks you, get, you're getting a good thing, you get angry. But if something blocks you getting an ultimate thing, something you've based your life on, you get epi-angry. You lose it. You say things, and then afterwards you ask the question, why did I say that? What in the world just happened? I talk to so many of you, myself included, and we say, I've got a short fuse. I've got anger issues. If you've got anger going on in your life, pause for a moment and ask, could it possibly be that you're getting angry because an over-desire is not being satisfied? That your reputation is being sullied in the community and you're angry about it and you're going to get vengeance for it. That somebody messed with your kids. Is it a good thing to want to defend your children, by the way, parents? I got three boys. But if someone messes with my boys and I say, I'm going to take that little booger out. Pause, McCutcheon. You're 47 years old. And you're going to go head to head with a 14-year-old? Really? You think maybe something may be out of whack in that moment? Oh, I'm just defending. I mean, I'm just a, I'm just a father bear. I'm just trying. I mean, any parent would do that. No, not every parent. But when my sons have become epi, when their happiness and their contentment has become ultimate in my life, and my anger rises up, or I'm unable to forgive you because you've hurt me, something's out of whack. So anger is a great test. Fear is another test. If something good in your life is threatened, you're worried. But if something ultimate in your life is threatened, you're paralyzed with fear. You absolutely fall apart. You can't control your anxiety. Are you so anxious that you can't see straight? That you can't think straight? Is there something that makes you so afraid that you know you're being driven by it? What is it that's controlling you out of fear? That you're terrified to lose it? That you find yourself wrestling? Could be your physical health? It could be your family. It could be your money. It could be all of those things. And again, not bad things. But when they've moved into an ultimate place, they control us. And fear is a great way. It's directing you. And then sadness. Quickly, I need to move on. Sadness. If you lose something that's good, you grieve. You weep. You mourn. It's terrible. It may take months to get over it. But if you lose something that's ultimate, You want to throw yourself off a bridge. What is it that if you lost it today, you'd be willing to say life might not be worth living? Whatever it is that just came to mind, be careful. It may be taking an ultimate place and controlling you and you don't even see it. So the problem is this. That we're in bondage to something. That we're in bondage to slavery and to sin. And some of you are sitting here and you're saying, yeah, But I'm not giving my life to Christ because if I give my life to Christ, then I'm going to be controlled by Him. And I love the freedom that I have now. I love being my own God. I love being my own end. You are naive and uninformed. You are enslaved to something. You just don't see what it is yet. But you are serving something. So what's the remedy in the couple of minutes that we have left? The remedy is this. Here's the remedy. Know the extent of your union with Jesus Christ. 
The remedy is that you have been united with Jesus Christ, both in his death and in his resurrection. That you are radically and totally transformed in him. Do you not know, verse 3, that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him in baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like him, like his. This word is a word, it's a horticultural word, grafted, that you've been grafted into Christ, that you've been grafted and united with him into his death, that you've been put in and inserted at the very roots of it. In Colossians 3, Paul goes on to explain it a little differently in a little fuller way. But he says, you have died with him, you have been raised with him, and you are seated at the right hand of God with him. The determining factor in your relationship with God is not your past, but it's his past. Do you recognize that? Do you see the transforming power of the fact that it's not your record that matters, but his that you have been engrafted into him and that you are now seated with him at the right hand. Guess how you got there? Guess where the right hand of God, guess who was gets to put there? The most honored person. And you know how you got there? Through his completed work because you've been engrafted into him. His past is your past, that you've been united with him in his death. You've been united with him in that way and you've been united with him in his resurrection. This is one of those moments this week in reading. I was like, I've never seen that before. It's so cool. You ever have those moments, I hope, in studying the scriptures? That you look and you go, I've read this and I've read this and I've never seen it. Well, there's this word uh, that's being used here. Uh, and the word that's being used uh, in this context, it says that, in, that we will be united with him and that we'll be forever changed. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be reunited with him in a resurrection like him. The word is pelagicentia. Pelagicentia. Genesis, the word. And it's only used three times in all of scripture. It's used here, pelagicentia. It's used in Matthew 19, 28. And it's used in Titus 3, 5 that we read earlier. And what it means is the consummation of all things, the rebirth of all things. It's a stoic philosophical word. For the Stoics believed that all of life was spinning out of control, it was falling apart, and that over and over there'd be rebirths, there'd be a consummation, and things would be made right again, and then fall apart again. And Jesus speaks in Matthew 19, 28, he says, there will be a renewal of all things. There will be a palagentia, there will be one renewal of all things when Christ returns. Have you ever considered that for a moment? Of what it's going to be like when Christ returns? you ever thought about that? That's going to be pretty cool, by the way. Jesus returns, he comes down, he drops out from wherever heaven is, and he enters into our time and space continuum again, and he's here, and the same cataclysmic power that brought into, everything, into existence everything that wasn't now transforms everything that is in existence into the new glorified existence, a new heaven and a new earth, all because of the Pelagentia, because of Christ changing it. That's going to be a cool day, isn't it? I mean, I'm really looking forward to that. I would love to be watching it and see it come about. Go, look at this. The power of God in the transformation of all things. And then guess what? Paul uses the same word in Titus chapter 3, verse 5. And he says, this pelagentia happens in the renewal of your life. 
That the power of Christ who is going to make all things new is the same power that overcame the dominion of Seth and sin in your life and it's making you new. That same cataclysmic, cosmic power has come and transformed your life. You realize that, right? I know, it's getting close to 12 and you got lunch plans. Stick with me a second, folks. Get excited about something. And it's this, that your past doesn't matter. It's Christ's past that matters. And it is his future and resurrection power that is in your life that is transforming you now. You are united with him in his death and in his resurrection. That's awesome news. That is transformative news that makes you look around and go, okay, I'm not going to ask the silly question or do I get to sin more now so I, because I get to experience grace. But you can go, I'm totally different than I was. I am radically, radically transformed. Because of the completed work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And it's happening in my life. That's the remedy. Do you want to come out from underneath the power of whatever it is that's controlling you? And if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ. Then what's controlling you is the evil one and Satan. And it says that the end of that is death. But if you want to come out from underneath the bondage of death. You have to step into the newness of life offered in Christ Jesus. Nothing else. Nothing else can break that dominion, no matter how hard you try. And so the invitation today is, will you believe even for the first time? And for those of you who believe in Christ, those of you who've given your life to him, the battle still comes back to this. Those other epithumias, those things that you're serving in your life, if you want them displaced and brought down in your life, you have to apply this truth, this remedy, no other remedy. Not more quiet times, not more white knuckling it, and not more fasting, not more this. It isn't through discipline that this changes per se. It is through belief in these truths. It is knowing these truths and then applying them. Then take the pill, and here's the taking of the pill. The first application of living in the freedom of this new identity that you have is hear this. You are not the same person. Praise God. You are not the same person, folks. St. Augustine was known before his conversion as a womanizer and a drunk of epic proportion. And after he was converted, one of his old lovers came to him and tried to seduce him. And she invited him back to where they had been before. And in his writings, he would say, these trysts, these times would go on for weeks, not moments. And she invited him back and she tried to seduce him again. And he didn't respond. And he began to walk away. And she looked at him thinking that maybe he didn't recognize her. And she said, Augustine, it is I. And he said, yes, but it is not I. I'm different. I'm not the same Augustine. I am not the same Bill McCutcheon. I've told you the story of how I met Lisa and we fell in love was on New Year's Eve when I was out with all those old buddies trying to be this new believer in the midst of all of my old ways and heading down a bad path. And thank goodness that we live in community with other believers and some of my good friends who had come to Christ looked at me and said, Bill, what are you doing? Get out of here. This isn't you. This is the old you, your new you, get out of here, go to church. And I was like, great, a bunch of losers at church on New Year's Eve, that's fun. So I walked into church with beer on my breath and thought, this is wonderful. 
And I looked up and there was Lisa Cleary playing the guitar. And I was like, this is wonderful. <laughs> and four weeks, five weeks later, we were engaged. And five months later, we were married. Hey, well, that's not what that's for. But what that's about is this. I had a friend for when I had forgotten who I was, they hadn't. Folks live in community. Live so well with other people that they know you. And that they can speak into your life and say, that's not you. Quit acting that way. You have been bought with a price. I know you're sad. I know you're angry. I know you're fearful. But don't be controlled by it. Remember who you are. Folks, do you have anybody like that in your life at all? We invite you to find them here in youth ministry, in the women's ministries, in our life-on-life ministries, in life groups. But you're not the same person. I need to move quickly. Hear this. Give yourself a break. It's going to take time. Your justification was like that. One-time act of God, by His grace, He radically transformed you. This changing over of power within your life, it says that you've been set free, but Martin Lloyd-Jones in one of his great sermons used an illustration of a people who had been in slavery to another people within the same city, the same kingdom. And a new king came, and he emancipated all the slaves. But it took time for those who had been formerly enslaved to recognize and to live out of their freedom. For they were still in fear to the others who were, had been their bosses and their masters. They didn't recognize their identity in this, but it says it takes time. So it's going to take you time to break old habits and old ways. So be patient with yourself. Be gracious and generous to yourself. Be gracious and generous to those who are around you. For they are messing up, by the way, just like you are. Those of you who stand in judgment over people have forgotten who you are. And so we change together in this over time. And then the final application, and I thought this was such a good one, that I read came, you have to battle the lie of the garden. The lie of the Garden of Eden was this, God can't be trusted. Satan came to Adam and Eve and said, he can't be trusted. He wants to destroy you. He wants to keep you from having fun. He's, a, he's not a good God. He's a miserly God. And you have to fight that lie now, every single day, of believing that he is trustworthy. You can entrust your life to him, friends. You can entrust your family to him. Your children you can entrust to this king and he will take care of them. You can entrust your wealth and your reputation. You can entrust your soul to him. And he says, I will care for it. But there is an evil one and you need to know it. He's whispering in your ear right now. He's saying, no, he won't. He's not trustworthy. That's an old lie. And you need to apply an old truth to it that God is for you and not against you and he says I want to prosper you in my midst so folks we have a problem in our lives we're in mastered we're mastered by something 
there is a remedy, and the remedy is the gospel of Jesus Christ of being grafted into both his death and into his resurrection. And then there is an application of taking that and daily applying it to our lives. So let's begin to live that way as a people of God. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for these truths. Thank you that your love never fails. Thank you that your love never gives up on us, that it never runs out on us. Thank you that your passion for us is cosmic and cataclysmic in nature. Father, forgive us when we go serve less wild lovers. When we go to find pleasures in other places. When you hold all the pleasures and treasures of eternity itself in your hands. And you've invited us to come to you. We give you praise and we give you glory today in Christ's name. Amen. So let's stand and sing our last song. One thing remains.